0: welcome to the waymaker fireside chat podcast where our purpose is to grow your life and change the world in this episode we sit down with dr madupe akinola lewis carr is the founder of waymaker the Lewis Carr Internship Foundation, the Blueprint Men's Summit, president of media sales at BET Networks and author of Dirty Little Secrets. Dr. Madhupe Akinola is a respected expert on the topic of stress and is well known for her role in Chris Hemsworth's new television series, Limitless, where she helps him manage stress as he pushes through his physical and mental limits. Lean in and learn as Dr. Akinola gives us practical ways to conquer our stress and so much more.
1: Hi, I'm Lewis Clark, founder of Waymaker. And today on the Waymaker Fireside Chat, we have the privilege of hearing from Dr. Madupe Akinola, who is professor at Columbia University in New York City. Welcome, Dr. Madupe.
2: Hello. Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: And, you know, uh, I've interviewed a, a lot of PhDs and a lot of MDs, and I've asked this question. Why do Black people always call the doctors by their first name? All right. We always, instead of saying your last name, we're going to call you Dr. First Name. All right. It's a Black I thing. I don't know what it is, but that's how
2: we roll. Okay, I'm good with it. I'm good with it.
1: So thank you for uh, uh, being with us today. Uh, I'm gonna tell our audience how I heard about you, how I found you. Uh, I was watching this series on the National Geographic channel called Limitless. And in the first episode, Dr. Madupe was there working with Chris Hemsworth. Guys, that's Thor, that's Thor. And she was working with him around stress. So that's how I discovered her. And I wanted you guys to sort of hear from her, hear her story, and learn about how we can manage stress. So, Dr. Madube, let's start. Where are you originally from? Where's your family from?
2: So, my family is from West Africa. My mom's from Togo. My dad's from Nigeria but they both grew up in Ghana, which is a little unusual, but both of their parents um, had had moved to Ghana, their families, and so they were raised there. And then they immigrated to the States in 1969 and started a life in New York City where I was born and raised in Manhattan, in Spanish Harlem to be specific.
1: Okay. And uh, tell us about your upbringing. How was that?
2: So, I mean, it was amazing on a variety of different dimensions, my parents were very focused on making sure that education was the what we did what we were about, you know they came to the US to be able to give me and my sisters eventually the lives that they couldn't have there. And that entailed education being the key to open many doors. So grew up in Spanish Harlem, so in Black neighborhood, um, but then th- went to predominantly white private all-girls school from K through 12. So my upbringing was um, an experience of navigating different worlds, an experience of being in the minority in one area in the majority where I lived, but still a different type of majority because I wasn't going to the local schools, I was going to this this private school. So, um, but you know, my family, I was raised with a lot of love, um, a lot of African traditions, even though we were in the the US and um, with a big belief that it takes a village So with lots of aunts, more aunties and uncles than one could ever imagine. Um, So so that was a bit of my upbringing. So
1: sounds like you you grew up in this environment uh, that was
2: different in multiple ways. Did you have to do a lot of code switching? Oh, goodness, yes. Life was code switching. I mean, you go to school and it's kind of, you know, you make sure that you are speaking proper English and all that, which my parents made sure was the case. Um, And then you go back to Spanish Harlem and you need to be like hey girl, you know, because you don't want to be called the Oreo or the one goes the white girl or whatever. So code switching is something that is a part of who I am. And one of the things about now being more seasoned in life I'll call it that is to be able to not have to code switch in my work environment. Uh Because and to be who I am and my authentic self, but that comes with time. That comes with um uh, that comes with getting to a particular level in some ways. But it's always on my mind. It's always on my mind. Okay, is this an environment where I feel psychologically safe to be my true self?
1: Wow. You know, I have this thing. People say you should be able to show up as your authentic self. I, I tweak it a little bit. I say your authentic best.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Because everybody couldn't take the authentic Lewis. So I have to show up as the best Lewis.
2: Right. And in most cases. And I think that advice is good and important advice. And we want to get there at a point. But we're still in a society that has stereotypes about us. And so we need to be thoughtful about that because you don't want to activate someone's stereotype and then lead them to treat you differently. So it's like navigating this, I wear the mask thing, as Paul Lawrence Dunbar, um, his poem mentioned, yeah, we have to wear the mask at times. But then when you get your foot in the door, the way you counteract stereotypes is being a counter stereotypical exemplar. So your presence changes those stereotypes of people so that hopefully generations after can come into these environments not having to code switch all the time because we have paved the way. So that's an important thing that I always remind myself and uh, tell people of color and people who are marginalized in some way in their backgrounds.
1: So you went to All Girls High School. How did you pick a college? Tell us about that process and which one did you pick?
2: So I went to a, an all-girls life school, I call it, because it was K-12, through 12, so it wasn't just high <laughs> school. And, you know, some of the students, the women that I admired at school, went on to Ivy League institutions. And I remember visiting um, colleges and feeling like I wanted to be in Massachusetts. My sister went on to an all-girls college. She went to Wellesley College, so she was in Massachusetts. And I felt like I wanted to go to Harvard. I wanted to go there, and so I worked hard, uh, K through twelve, <laughs> to um, make sure that I demonstrated that I belonged there. And so that's where I went to car- cut to college to Harvard University. And I will tell you, I found a note that my mom had written in her journal that when I was applying to these schools, saying my daughter wants to apply to this school and all these ivy league schools and i don't know i don't know i know the school's saying that she should and all that but we'll see and and i hope it all works out you know so again coming growing up when from a family of immigrants like this idea of striving for that high was something that that was unheard of in my family i mean so um it was a reminder that when you set your sights high great things can happen. And so that's how I landed at Harvard.
1: And how was that experience for you?
2: Amazing. Honestly, Harvard for me was phenomenal. I'm an entrepreneurial person. I mean, in Spanish Harlem, I was making friendship bracelets and selling them uh, to the the dudes on the street for like $25 when I was in my teens. So I like to create, find opportunities and create opportunities for myself based on what I'm excited about. And I found that at Harvard, I could do that. It's a school that has deep pockets. So if I was like, hey, I really want to be in West Africa one summer, let me find grants, find resources to be able to do that. Um, And I was able to do that. I really wanted to run A student run company and and be active in business. So I helped run our student run company. I mean, anything that I felt like I could dream, I was able to make happen there through um, the grants and relationships that I developed. So it was a dream place for me. Not to mention, I met some of the most amazing people that to this day are my closest friends. So, um, and also being in Boston, you have a bunch of other schools too. So you have this great network of people from lots of different schools, MIT, BU, Tufts, Brandeis, Bentley, Babson, all that, Wellesley. So you're in a college town and you get exposure to so many amazing people. So it was a gift, Harvard was a gift for me in terms of going there for college.
1: But you didn't just stop there, you you kept on in your academics. Where did you go from there?
2: So after Harvard College, I got the privilege in the summer of my junior year in college, to go to West Africa, now, as I mentioned, my parents had immigrated in the sixties. I went back in the late seventies right before I started kindergarten to for my parent my family to my grandparents and aunts and uncles to meet me and my sister, so my dad took us back, but I hadn't been back afterwards. My parents sacrificed a lot to send us to these amazing school. So junior year, I was like, I want to go back. I want to see all these people that I've seen in in photos and all that. And so I got some grants to work at UNICEF in a neighboring country, Benin, and spent time there over the summer, got to see my family, and I loved it so much. I was like, you know what, I want to come back to West Africa after I graduate from college. Yes, in my ha- mind, I also had business school and business on my mind as something I wanted to do eventually. But I wanted to give back the education I had been blessed with to the street kids on the street. To you know, just being able to be in that environment that was my foundation. So after college, immediately after, I uh, started a set of nurse. I started a set of nurseries and literacy centers in Ghana. So I did that. And one of the things you realize when you are kind of doing nonprofit work is that nonprofits often lack sound financial management, and so I kind of felt like you know I need to strengthen my business skills and and other things to be able to maybe be as uh, strong in running this in the future if that was something I chose, or to be in the business world, which was something I was definitely considering. So I ended up coming back to the states and working in a consulting firm, Bain and Company. So I did pure business, Bain & Company for a couple of years. Then I went to business school. I went back to Harvard. I went to Harvard Business School. And again, had a great experience. At that point, didn't know, do I want to do business? Do I want to do nonprofit? Do I want to do general management? I I didn't know. So I went back to consulting. And again, learned a lot and learned a lot about the foundations of business. Learned a lot about strategy. How do you make something successful? But while I was at Bain, I did a couple of things. One, I ran uh, ran their diversity, equity, and inclusion practice um, in addition to being a consultant. But I realized one of the things I loved about consulting was, yes, solving business problems for our clients, but also the organizational dynamics, understanding why some people buckled under stress and others didn't, understanding why some of our clients accepted some of our um, recommendations, others didn't. And I realized I was thinking a lot more about the organizational dynamics than purely the business side of things, which made me wonder if I should think about a career in academia where I could scientifically study that, scientifically study stress, scientifically study diversity, scientifically study other psychological phenomena that I was observing at Bain. So at that point, I then decided that I wanted to get my PhD. And yes, I went back to Harvard to get my PhD um, and then, you know, had a great experience. My PhD learned a ton, landed at Columbia Business School um, for my professor job. And I've been there for 13 years now.
1: So, Dr. Madupe, those who get those three degrees from Harvard, thats a name for that, right? Is there? I think there's a name for people who get three degrees from Harvard. Right.
2: And I, I have to correct you because I actually have four because I also have another master's that I got on my way to, <laughs> to get my PhD. So, yeah. Because
1: I've known people who graduated with a BA, an MBA, and a JD. All right. Mm-hmm. And they call that something. I, I, I just read it recently. So oh, we're, we're going to have to figure that, that out when, when we sort of write, write this article about that. What are they called? So you have four degrees from Harvard.
2: I do, I do.
1: Okay, Uh, listening audience, I'm even more impressed right now. Okay, I I knew it was three, but I didn't know it was four. All right, so now we're at Columbia, all right? And you are teaching exactly what?
2: So now we're at Columbia, and I'm teaching the core required leadership course to first-year MBAs. The way I like to put it is I'm trying to teach... First year MBAs who just are starting off, how to be inspiring, ethical, thoughtful leaders of the 21st century who know how to motivate others to do good. That that's what I do, um, to be good decision makers, to be able to influence and persuade. Um, so, so I I I like to say I start the foundation of their leadership journeys by reminding them of the things that matter most and about, and especially about how to be self-aware and how not to be the poor leaders that many of them have had.
1: Wow. So when I discovered you on Limitless, you were dealing with this subject called stress, yeah. which I think most people at some point in their life or most people their whole life face it. Yes. Tell us your general philosophy on stress. Yes,
2: my general philosophy on stress is that, as you said, all of us have and will continue to experience stress. But most of us can think about times where we have really thrived under that stress. But the dominant model that we always get is stress is bad, get rid of it, avoid it, run away from it, reduce it. But I know I've had many situations where the stress I was feeling gave me the energy, gave me the motivation to really keep pushing and that ended up being an extremely beneficial experience. So one of the things I teach about and I focus on in my research is the idea that stress in and of itself isn't good or bad. It's our mindsets about stress that influences the extent to which our experiences with stress will be beneficial or harmful. And so this is not about getting rid of it and denying it. It's about acknowledging that the stress exists, kind of welcoming it because it is intended to facilitate, and then being able to kind of channel channel it and use it to your benefit. And again, well, instead,
1: why don't we feel like that? We always say, (laughs) I'm
2: stressed, I'm stressed. Because, Because I think that we have automatically associated it with something negative. And instead we can train our minds to say, oh, I'm stressed. Okay, why am I stressed? Okay, what do I care about that is stressing me out? Okay, now what can I do to make sure that my best self shines in light of this stress. That's the process we need to go through. Instead of, I'm stressed, can I have some potato chips? And can I um, dump dump my trauma on other people? And can I drink extra wine and then yell at people and be reactive? So that cycle is one we can stop when we remember, okay, not all stress is bad, it's okay. And by the way, I'm not saying that there aren't stressors that are hard when your family member is ill and you're trying to manage and balance a lot of things. It's tough. Many of us have been in situations like that, but we, they, it's also allowed us to rise to the occasion situations like that. I have seen myself just get to this whole different level of who I am and shown my resilience. In the situation and those are that's how i think it's important for us to think about and interpret our stress
1: so why don't we remember those occasions now as you were just talking about this i started to remember several occasions when i was an athlete yeah. every time i had to race when i was an athlete yeah i was stressed all yeah. right i can remember one particular time that i overslept mm-hmm. i had to run from the hotel right onto the track mm-hmm. changing as I was walking through the stadium, yeah. got into the starting blocks and ran the fastest time. Yeah. I was so stressed though. Cause I'm like, my coach is going to be pissed. All right. My teammates are going to be looking at me like I'm crazy. Uh, my roommate going to be looking at me like, I told you, I told you you're going to oversleep. So ran the fastest time, got myself and ran right back out the stadium. All right. Now, I don't remember those times that I perform like. until we're having conversations like this. So is it that we have poor memories or we just shed it out for some reason and don't think about those times we perform well under stress?
2: Right. I mean, I think psychologically, we tend to anchor on many of the negative things that happen to us and forget about all of the, many of the positives. And so in general, it's retraining our minds not to just linger on the negatives that's that's, it's a natural part of life and so I think that part of one of the things I tell people in being present with their stress is to recall the many times that they thrived under stress so it's to change your dominant kind of pattern which is to say oh wait that was a bad outcome but instead to say oh wait a minute I can think of lots of times I can think of lots of times I remember this when this happened and then how I reacted and all that so that's one of the first steps is to remember, I call them the monuments, you know, the monuments where you've really climbed um, and, and made it under stress.
1: So in the series Limitless, you 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 pushed him to the limit, yes, all right? I, uh, I mean, swimming in the Arctic Ocean, you know, being in a pool with your hands and feet tied, yeah. you know, yeah. tell me what was on your mind when you decided that this would get him to the place that he needed to be to do the ultimate thing you wanted him to do?
2: I mean, I sometimes think that we need to expose ourselves to extremely physical challenges, partly because our bodies were designed so that when we're under that type of physical stress, we get the resources the adrenaline, the hormones to be able to fight or flee from that stressful situation. So in order to know that you can overcome stress, you need to put yourself into extremely stressful situations. Now, wait. I want to make sure that what people who are listening, I'm not saying like go do some crazy stuff. This is under supervision. This was, you know, Chris Hemsworth, who has exposed himself to lots of different um, intensely stressful situations. But I wanted to design something that he would think that he could not fully overcome and give him the tools to overcome it. And one of the simple tools to do when you're under stress is just breathe. Our heart rate increases you know, we go through this rapid breathing and you wanna tell yourself, wait a minute, slow down. Let me get myself, my body and my mind back to normal. Let me slow down my sympathetic nervous system that is now activated so that then my kind of like rest and digest parasympathetic nervous system is activated. So that's why we came up with pretty intense stressors because for him um, being able to experience that and then get tools to then kind of conquer that gave him what he needed to be able to do the end experience that he was exposed to. So
1: we've heard that when you're stressed, you should work out. Is that fact or fiction?
2: You know, I don't think there's a one size fits all solution to what you should do when you're stressed. You know, for some people that workout is helpful because of these hormones, like when you work out, you get endorphins, you get adrenaline, you get cortisol, you get all that. And so it kind of can help you in regulating. Um, And I think that there's something about working out that then distracts your mind because you're doing something physical. Um, So And then you're breathing, remember like when you're running, you are breathing, so you're getting your heart rate in a kind of smooth state and that can calm you down. That's for some people. For other people, they need to just sit and be still. Or they need to read a book. Or I was talking to somebody yesterday, I did a session on stress, and they said, you know, that when, when they're stressed, if they can sit by the fireplace with their cat in their rocker, like they don't need to be running. You know, other people, let's go for a long walk. I'm not sure what it is. But one of the things that I mentioned in the episode is you need to date your stress. And by that, I mean, you need to get to know your stress, just like you get to know somebody you're trying to get to know better in a relationship. When do I feel like I'm excited about you? What do I need to feel good? What makes me feel happy? What makes me feel joy when I'm under stress? Dating your stress. What are my emotional reactions, behavioral reactions? What does my body do? And if you know that, it does two things. One, it helps you to know your stress signals. Then you can say, oh, I just went for the potato chips. I keep on saying that because I do go for the potato chips. I just, that's a stress signal. Mm, It means that what do I need right now? What do I need? What am I experiencing? Why am I stressed? So it does, it A, uh, makes you acknowledge and aware of the stress that you're experiencing and feeling, but B, it then allows you to take control and to give yourself what you need in the moment instead of relying on other people or other things to help you de-stress.
1: So the obvious next question is, what do you do to deal with stress?
2: Yeah. Um, so one of the, I do a lot of things. I do a lot of things. Besides and, potato
1: chips. Besides, besides the potato.
2: The potato chips and candy. Uh, <laughs> um, one of the things I do is I am a an avid meditator. Now, when I started all this stuff, I could not meditate for five minutes. You tell me, like, listen to some music, whatever. i fall right asleep but I learned that I need to still my mind and just be present and feel my bodily sensation. So I do kind of a lot body scanning to kind of just be present in my body to then calm down all the thinking that I'm doing. I'm a thinker, I do it for my profession. So I need to stop thinking and feel. And when I do that, that helps me to say, oh, what emotions am I feeling? ooh, what is that thinking that I'm having? That's negative thinking. How can I get the positive self-talk going? So that's one thing. I am an exerciser. So I love going for a walk and being in nature when I am stressed. I, the fresh air and experiencing and hearing and even feeling if you're in cold weather, that breath, that just calms me down. But the other thing is sometimes I believe in phoning a friend. Sometimes you just need to vent. And you need to call on somebody and say like, hey, this is going on, I just need a vent. And then also, I try on the other side when somebody asks me, I, I ask them, what do you need from me? Because when someone's venting, you need to know, do you need me to agree and cosign on the things you're venting? Do you need me to be the positive voice? Do you need me to just shut up and just listen? Like, what do you need? Do you need me to help solve the problem? Because I think that we don't do that enough. We try to prescribe way too much instead of just asking the person what they need when they're stressed in the moment. So I think two things, you need to ask yourself, but you also need to make sure that whoever's supporting you asks you what you need.
1: Do you think people in the world are stressed more today Yes. than they were, say, 10 years ago? I mean, a lot is happening out there.
2: Absolutely. And part of it is the technology that we can't turn off. I mean, 10, 15 years ago, you weren't always getting, you know, contacted every minute of the day. People didn't have access to you. No. And now they do. You know, there, it, there was, there's COVID. Yeah. So you're more stressed over. Am I going to be sick? What's going to happen? All that. Our political climate is special, I'll call it. So that's stressful. You know, there's so much uncertainty in the world with regard to um, employment. That's stressful. Like, then the many disease, the cancer is, is rampant. That's stressful. So yes, there are many more stressors. You know, they say that People were happiest. The the number of happy people in the U.S., um, that number peaked in 1957 and since has not um, gotten to that high. So we had so much less than we, they, I was not alive. Thank you very much. They had so much less than than we have now, but we're we're so much more stressed. That's amazing things too, but that just means we need to do more to kind of make sure that stress isn't killing us.
1: So when someone comes to you and say, I'm stressed out about the economy, I'm stressed out about my job, I'm stressed out about COVID, I'm stressed out about politics, I'm just stressed, stress, stress." What do you say to them?
2: I say, tell me more. Hmm. Tell me more. Sometimes people just need to share what's going on with them. And then, you know, once they tell me more, then I keep probing, like, and and try to get to the underlying reason why they care, because we're stressed because we care. So there's something usually deeper. And when someone can get to the underlying reason why, then it kind of shifts the perspective on stress. It shifts things because then they can say, oh, I know I'm stressed and all of this is bad and intense, but... I'm stressed because ultimately I want to be able to provide for my family because I love my family and I want um, them, my family members to thrive. So, okay, so this stress has a purpose and a meaning. So in light of that, what do I need to be able to keep being present with it so that I can provide in the way that I want to provide for the big things that matter in my life? What I don't want people to do is be stressed over the little things that aren't as meaningful. That's the problem, that we're stressed out about little, meaningless things, and that's what's continuing to kill us.
1: So, Dr. Madupe,
2: yes.
1: as we sort of look at specifically the black community,
2: Yes,
1: there's just there's a lot going on. It's, it's a lot going on. So what I would ask you to speak to those listeners mm-hmm. and give them some advice on dealing with just the day-to-day life. We talked a week ago, we, we talked about Black people stressed all the time, all right? Yeah. Give give our Black listeners some advice on how they sort of deal with this stressful environment in life that we have.
2: Yeah. Well, that's such a good question and, and such a good thing to do is to be able to, I'd like to say, breathe life <laughs> into uh, how people are feeling. You know, I think the first thing I would say is we're here and we're blessed with life. You have been put on this earth for a reason. I truly believe that each of us is here because there is a problem or a question that we are uniquely designed to solve or address. There is. And there is a purpose for your existence. There is a purpose behind what you're experiencing. And so it's on you to figure out what that purpose is. And to figure out what question and what you're supposed to be solving in this world. And yes, sometimes that might come with stress because this world is really messed up and needs you. It needs you. And so how then can you, in light of the stress that you might be feeling, think about all of the good that is going on in your life right now? And so one of the first things to say is like, what are you grateful for? Think about all the things that you have to be grateful for in the moments that you're stressed. That's one. Two, I want to go back to, okay, like, well, what is this stress? Because the way I like to define stress is um, it's when the demands of a situation exceed your resources to cope. And what do I mean by demands? Well, what is the danger or uncertainty or thing that makes you need to exert a lot of effort? What is it? What are you nervous about? What are you fearful of? What's going on? And then, well, you can overcome that danger, uncertainty, and extra effort through your resources. What knowledge and ability do you need? What external support do you need? What is it that you might need psychologically to be able to overcome that stress that you're experiencing? And so it's on you to figure out what those answers are. And I can promise you that somewhere in your atmosphere, you have someone or yourself who can provide you with that knowledge and ability, who can provide you with that external support to help you in that thing that you are stressed about. So that's what I want people to remember, that they are here for a reason and there's a meaning and a purpose behind all of it. Um, So let's just keep pushing to try to to get at it and understand maybe you're going through this tough time because you um, are supposed to be supporting people who are going through these tough times. Like, I don't know what it is, but channel that and utilize that stress for good.
1: Dr. Medupe, you have been amazing. Thank you for this great advice. I, I really understand now, and I believe you do have four degrees from Harvard, <laughs> so we, we we appreciate that knowledge and thank you so much for educating and informing the waymaker audience. We appreciate you and we want you to come back on a regular basis.
2: Well, I am happy to be able to support what the work you're doing with Waymaker is incredible. Thank you for the sacrifices you've made uh, to put this out there. I mean, when I talk about purpose, think about the impact you are having. And yes, it might be stressful and all that, but the larger picture is so much more important. So thank you for having me on and uh, for finding me. And uh, this has been a treat.
1: And how can people find you who want to find you? Can you give us your social handles?
2: I'm so bad with social, but I believe I'm on Instagram. You can find me there. I'm on LinkedIn. Just put my name in, Madupe Akinola, um, and you will find me. Let's put it that way. Yes.
1: Okay. Dr. Madupe Akinola. Dr. Thank you so much. I
2: appreciate you. My pleasure. Thank you. And have a great rest of the day and weekend.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this conversation between Lewis Carr and Dr. Madupe Akinola. What did you enjoy about this episode? Let us know on our social media at Waymaker Culture. And don't forget to claim your Waymaker Journal at WaymakerJournal.com. And be sure to enter the Waymaker giveaway by going to WaymakerContest.com. Subscribe to the Waymaker Fireside Chat podcast to get notifications each time we release an episode.